Knowing that you love the earth changes you, activates you to defend and protect and celebrate. But when you feel that the earth loves you in return, that feeling transforms the relationship from a one-way street into a sacred bond. Robin Wall Kimmerer, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. What a beautiful quote. And that was provided by today's guest, Lupo Passero. She is a community herbalist, flower essence practitioner, and founder and director of Twin Star Herbal Education and Community Apothecary up in New Milford, Connecticut. I met Lupo because I actually did the logo for their apothecary for Twinstar. And I loved that project and I loved our conversations about what Lupo was looking for to rebrand their logo. And um, I've been honored to be able to speak with her today. We got into a lot of um, plant talk, some plants I knew about, some I didn't, which is great. And my girlfriend listened to this podcast and she found it extremely fascinating as someone just starting to get into some of the medicinal plants and some of the, the, the spiritual elements of plants. We talked a lot about black cohosh. I guess that, that would be the theme of, of today's conversation. And Lubo told two really fascinating stories. One about black cohosh kind of as her spirit plant. She doesn't use those words, but that's how it felt to me, a plant that she really resonates with. And uh, later on, a story about how her grandmother influenced her path into becoming an herbalist. And around that, we have a lot of interesting conversations and me trying to learn some more about the plants I got right out here in my backyard. And very importantly, for context, we recorded this on Monday morning after the initial weekend of the George Floyd killing and the protests, the Black Lives Matter movement and the ensuing riots and just the confusion of, of what was happening. So we woke up on Monday, I'm sure, like a lot of you, feeling pretty distressed and upset and heavy hearted about the state of the world. So we started there and then we brought it to nature and I hope you enjoy today's conversation. Thank you so much. All right, so our guest today is Lupo Passero. And, um, well, we've woken up to a kind of rough morning, huh? Past few days. Yeah, we sure have. It's definitely perilous, necessary times right now. Yeah, normally I've I've decided I wanted to start the podcast by 
Well, the point of this podcast is really to just kind of spread our love for the natural world. And one thing I wanted to do with, with each podcast guest is to ask them like kind of for the like backyard news, like, is there an interesting animal or plant that you've seen in the past week that has been really exciting? For instance, I just got a text um, yesterday morning from my mom and stepfather who live about 30 minutes away. <clears throat> and they have, they've been seeing two gray foxes that keep running around in their yard. And yesterday morning, they saw one of the adults guarding and three little kits. And then they saw the adult um, hunt a little snake. And and my stepdad thought it might give the snake to the little kits, but I guess the kits are still so young, they're, I guess, probably still nursing and the snake was eaten by the adult. <laughs> I love seeing, Whoa. yeah, so I thought, I, I've noticed by living in the country, small talk is about, usually about nature. So I thought it'd be fun to just begin these podcasts. Yeah. I know we have some heavy news with what's going on out in the world, but it, it'd be fun to just kind of start this with our backyard plants and animals, if you feel that that's appropriate today. Yeah, let's do it. It's interesting because I woke up this morning. I'm right outside of Asheville, North Carolina, and I'm quarantining in an Airbnb by myself for a few days because I just needed a minute to gather my thoughts and have some big things on the horizon. And I just needed a timeout. So that's where I find myself this morning. And I woke up and I went outside. Of course, it's a beautiful day. There is an energy in the air that's like tangible that we know like big things are happening right now. And there's a lot of momentum and movement and emotions. And I was sitting outside and I look over and there's this black cat just sitting like maybe 20 feet away with these yellow eyes. He has a collar on. If he didn't have a collar on, I might have thought it was a figment of my imagination. But he had a collar on and he's just staring at me. It was like he was staring just directly at me. And wow. So we sat there for a few minutes and, and vibed together. And, um, you know, cat medicine to me, I'm a little bit um, scared of not little cats, like house cats, but big cats. They're just so powerful. And, you know, when I'm hiking out in California and stuff, I'm always thinking about these big cats and how intense they are. And anyway, so that was a really interesting, like, first thing first sighting this morning. And then I went to my car to get the headphones. And I noticed that outside of this little Airbnb, that they chose to plant these tansy plants around this beautiful oak tree outside. And when I see tansy, my first thought is like tenacious. Like they, mm. I was like, wow, I wonder if they knew what they were doing by planting these tansies right here, because they're going to get so big and so powerful and nothing can stop them. And it doesn't matter like you know, where you put them in the ground, they're just going to flourish. And they also have these bright yellow flowers, which were sort of indicative of these cats' bright yellow eyes. And so that was my, my good morning, like this black cat omen, which as a witch to me is positive medicine. Mm. And then these like tenacious pansies growing outside around this oak tree. And, you know, oak is all about like stability and like and holding your ground and knowing your boundaries. And then Tansy is all about being tenacious and to me, like fighting the good fight. So I think I have a really beautiful little thing going on this morning over here. Mm, I'm not familiar with that plant. Can you describe it a little bit? Is it native? You said it was planted at the oak, but is it a native plant? No, it's not a native plant. I believe that it's from Europe and it's used generally as like a 
vermifuge or used to get rid of like parasites, especially Mm. like in pets. And it's, you know, it's very strong in action. So we don't use it a lot in herbal medicine unless we are trying to fight off a parasite or something in or on the body that shouldn't be there. So that's an interesting thought too about thinking about it showing up. But more than anything, it's just when I say it's tenacious, it's just going to grow and it's going to get so big and it's just going to take over. So it just really has this like energy of like not backing down and it's beautiful right now. It's not flowering quite yet. And they're only about maybe two or three feet tall, but they could easily get eight feet tall. Mm. And what do you make of that cat? I don't really know what to make of the cat. Cause like I said earlier, that's my, you know, like that's an animal for me that I have a lot of fear around and mm. not like fear in a bad way, like fear in a healthy way, like a respectful way, like big cats to me, you know, mountain lions and pumas and tigers and especially like black cats. Like they have this, I think they're of the spirit realm. I think that they mm. are here as, you know, the in-betweens and it's not like my medicine in the way that I see it. And I'm like, Oh, I feel really like peaceful and happy. I see it. And I, think to myself, wait, what's going on? Mm. What do I need to be paying attention to? I have a lot of what, what's showing up. And I have a lot of dreams of, of, I have a lot of dreams of, um, kind of ominous cats. I know I'm really into Jungian psychology. So, you know, the cat is often seen as a symbol of the feminine and, uh, maybe a symbol of those more instinctual, mysterious elements of the feminine, perhaps. And I have a lot of, yeah, I have a lot of dreams with cats in yeah. it. And sometimes they're quite, they're quite ominous. A cat trying to get into my house or something like that, or I haven't in a, in a while, but that's interesting. Have you seen any of the big cats? Um, well, it's, well, it's interesting too. Well, one, I, I do have those similar, very similar dreams to, that you do. And I've had them my entire life since I was a small child. And it's, the dream is always very similar in the, in the um, fact that there's, big cats all around and to everybody else, it would just be like dogs running around or little cats running around. Nobody else is afraid, but I'm always like running from them and they're always running after me. But when they catch up with me, they never hurt me. Like sometimes they want to like just pull on my shirt. They want me to pet them or sometimes they want even to like spoon me and just like hold me. And so I think there's like this power dynamic there of like surrendering to like what you're fearful to so that you can become more powerful and here in Western North Carolina, they have this, this beautiful place called the Western North Carolina Nature Center. And last year, around this time, I was here with my daughter and she was looking at colleges and we went there to go see the animals and they're all animals that have been rehabilitated. So it's not a zoo as much as it is a rehabilitation of native um, North American animals. And they do have a mountain lion there. And that mountain lion is so intense. And even though I know that it's on the other side of this fence and there's no way that it can reach me, I am, every time I see it, my heart just leaps out of my chest. Like I'm fearful and I start to shake. And so we were looking at it and I was like, all right, that's enough. And so I started walking and it came and it was walking right next to me on the other side of this, you know, chain link fence. And it was just walking with me. And I think of that too, of like the divine feminine. I also think of like power. I think of power mm-hmm. that's been oppressed and repression mm-hmm. and also misunderstanding and being afraid of things that we don't really know. And there's an amazing goddess, uh, Durga, I believe she's from the Hindu tradition and she rides on a Bengal tiger, like mm. as her vehicle. <laughs> and, 
I think that's pretty profound too. Like I'd like to get to that place where I can in my dreams, just like hop on my vehicle, which is a tiger or lion and, you know, soar through like some of this chaos that we're in right now. But I think even just that little black cat, even though it was a house cat and somebody owned it, I think it's a metaphor for the empowering times that we're in and, and maybe the invitation to not be so afraid mm. and to greet the fear and to stand there and shake, but just to still stand there. And I think that's what a lot of our fellow people are doing right now. I think they're standing mm. in the face of monumental change and they are afraid, but they're still speaking, even if their voice is shaking. Mm. And I just want to commend all of those folks that are on the front lines right now doing this work and standing up for the injustices that we're facing as a nation. Absolutely. And for the folks listening, what's going on right now is we have the protests and the riots and the Black Lives Matter movement that's um, going off in the news right now in all the kind of all the cities across America. So that's what we're referencing. Um, back to your dream that that's really fascinating. My girlfriend has had a recent dream with a really powerful tiger coming at her. I know for me, um, kind of the way you're describing this kind of uneasiness with the big cats, I have, I feel similarly attracted to and scared of bears. And I have a lot of dreams with bears that I'm scared of or bears that are increasingly aggressive. And, um, recently they're, they're trying to kind of invade where I'm living and I'm trying to arm myself and to basically kill the bear that's coming for me. And, you know, back to Jung, Jung, Jung's point of view is that these animals in our dreams are aspects of our instincts and they're, the animal is an instinctual level of consciousness. So something about something about these animals for you and me, there's some level of our instinctual life that I guess is being represented by them. It's kind of hard to fully understand, but that's really fascinating. Thanks for telling me about that, about your dreams. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you 100%. And I think you and I might have had this conversation before with the with the bear in, in my, the way that I view the bear is I view it as the herbalist and yes. that's because it has this ability to like pick berries and pick plants and dig up roots. And they have like, there's all these beautiful stories of how bears really interact with, with plants in, in their world. And so I, I think that's part of the invitation too, is like when the things that we're afraid of generally hold like this really powerful, big medicine and like, how do we greet that? You know, how do we greet that and accept that in? And you can see it in the plant world. You can see it in the animal world. You can see it in the elements. You know, some people are afraid of fire. Some mm. people are afraid of spiders. You know, we mm -hmm. all have something that we're afraid of. And I think you're absolutely right. Like what, what does, what is that representation of fear? And how can we like dissect that? What is the story of what that plant or element or animal is trying to tell us? So I heard you. So I, thanks for sharing that with me about the bear medicine. Mm. I, I just heard you, and I don't know if it was a podcast or a lecture, but I heard you talk about the bear and OSHA. And I think it'd be cool for the sake of these listeners who might be a different audience. You know, I'm planning to, at some point, you know, interview people that do hunt for bear. So I thought it would be pretty cool to have someone like you, an herbalist, talk about some of these things that maybe they don't know about, like this this thing with OSHA, how the bear uses OSHA. So I know I've heard you say it before, but it'd be awesome if you could kind of tell us about that. And you said there were some other plants that they might use. I would love to hear about that. Yeah, I think I have this one photo in my um, 
library at home that was taken years ago. And it's a picture of a bear sitting up and like picking elderberries like off the tree. And so I always associate elder with the bear as well, which is like super witchy plant that, um, you know, is native to this, to this region is considered like one of the plants and one of the trees that that holds the veil and like really holds the space between like what we're in right now and what transcends beyond. And so I really love that photo. And I think of bear, I think of that ability to just sit there and pick out these, then the berries are tiny. I mean, I mm-hmm. harvest elderberries. Like if you know, I've got a knife with me and I'm cutting big bundles at a time, they're pulling off just a couple at a time, which is pretty impressive. That is incredible. So that's one of the plants that I associate with bear as well. Sorry to interrupt or real quick elderberry for those who okay. who are are not herbalists, elderberry is is often used for immune system. Correct? You make syrups with it. I've done that with my girlfriend, and my mom does it a bunch. Um, could you tell us quickly a little bit about elderberry? Yeah, sure. So the the native species that grows in this area is, um, or at least on the east coast here, the species that we have is Sambucus canadensis, and um, all parts of the plant are actually used but particularly it's known for its berries and the berries are made into a syrup and they're considered to be incredibly antiviral. And there are so many studies that support the use of elderberry during flu and viral infections. And so it's actually something that a lot of people are focused on right now because we're also in the midst of this COVID epidemic. So really great plant to get to know. It's incredibly safe to use. But one thing that users should know about the elderberry is that we don't eat it right off the plant the way that the bear does. Bear can do that, but we can't as human beings. So if we eat the berries directly off the plant, when they're red, they actually, before they turn black, they contain cyanide. So that can make us very sick. And if we eat them when they're ripe, they still um, have a sort of a toxic effect on our body and will act as a purgative and make us throw up. So elderberries actually have to be cooked to be used as medicine. So once we take them to boil with a little bit of water, we've cooked out anything that could make us sick. So I guess elderberry 101 is if you find them and you positively identify them in the woods, don't start eating them the way that bear does, because we know that animals can do all sorts of things that we cannot do. No, I missed that part last time I uh, harvested it last summer. I only ate maybe like a few, but I read that when I got home and I was like, oh, geez Louise. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the worst thing that's really going to happen to you is you're going, it's going to act as an emetic and you're going to start throwing up and you know, that's your, that's not a fun thing, but you probably would have learned your lesson if you got a little bit sick. Um, so most folks, you know, it's not something that we have to really worry about acting as like a deadly plant, but it is something that would make us sick. And it's funny with berries because they're so inviting, you know, they're bright and they're juicy and they're dark and they're delicious. And our instinct is to be want to eat it. But it's just one of those berries that we cannot consume unless we cook first. So a lot of like old timers would make jams and pies and, you know, in addition to like syrups and things like that, it would be used as food as medicine as well. But the medicine just has to be cooked first. And the flowers of that plant are also used um, as well. So if you have an elderberry bush in your neck of the woods and you want to harvest some of the flowers, they're blooming right now. At least they are here in North Carolina. They just started to come into bloom. And so if you gather some of those blooms, you can use the elderflower as a tea. 
And that also works as a really wonderful like antihistamine. It's one of my favorite That's herbs awesome. for spring allergies. So the allergies that are coming up right around now and the folks that are feeling agitated. Yeah. And then it works beautifully as anti-inflammatory as well. And as a diaphoretic, which increases heat in the body and allows us to sweat out the things that we don't need. So elderflower and elderberry work beautiful in conjunction together. But if we went over to this elder bush, if there was one outside our door right now and one of our listeners was like, that's great. And they run out there and they collect all those elder flowers. They just have to remember that you won't get any berries if you collect all the flowers. So what's a good idea is to collect some flowers. Oh, interesting. Right. And let the rest of those flowers eventually turn into the berry, which we can make into syrups. Okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, so that's elderberry. That's a little bit about the history. We're lucky to have it here. Yeah, there's another variety, San... Um, Sambucus nigra, and that's the European variety, but we are very lucky to have a native variety here in the Northeast there and on the, on the East coast here in um, North America, there's another variety that grows out in California. So if our folks are listening on the West coast, they know far more about that variety than I do, but those berries are actually blue. I think it's Sambucus mexicana is the species. I'm not a hundred percent on that, but I'm 90% on that. And it, it's very different um, looking than the plant that we have here on the East Coast, but it has the same actions as far as being an antiviral and really helping the body ward off and fight off um, flu-like infections. Mm. And it is a high-dose herb. So once you have it, you've got your bottle of elderberry syrup. I always tell folks when they come into the apothecary, I'm like, don't let this sit in your fridge for the next three months, you know, this is something that if you think you're getting sick, you should be consuming it on a regular basis, you know, two or three times a day for the next few days. Mm. So it's a high dose herb. And there's a lot of beautiful studies out there that support the use of it, reducing the duration of the flu. So an average flu can be anywhere from 10 to 14 days. And when folks use elderberry syrup um, to help fight that infection, it reduces their time up to, you know, five days instead of 10 days. And not to mention that it tastes incredible. It also, yeah, it tastes incredible. Well, it helps that we put, usually we put honey in there. And so that makes it taste pretty yummy as well. And you've got that honeybee medicine too, which is just so good for the body and the mind and the soul. Mm. It's just a, fa it's a fantastic plant. It's one that's great to get to know. And, you know, we work with quite frequently as herbalists. And it also has a lot of like long history, especially in on the East Coast here of, of being a food as well. I met this woman one day on the side of the road and she was selling elderberry pies. And of course, mm. you know, I wanted, I got one and we, her and I got to talking and I said, you know, elderberry is, you know, it's hard to find a big bush of it. You know, sometimes it's, you find it like far and few between, or you want to save, you know, the flowers so that they'll turn into berries. And then when they do turn into berries, that, that other piece is that you've got to, you've got to pick them right at the right moment. And the right moment is before the birds get there. So there's this like waiting for the berries to turn ripe, but the birds are also on the daily waiting for those same berries to turn ripe as well. So it's this really interesting you know, whoever gets their first sort of situation. So we were talking about that and sharing. And she said, oh, honey, I have an elderberry bush that, you know, I could never harvest enough from. She said, come on over and I'll show you. This was in um, upstate New York. Hmm. And so I said, all right, sure. And she said, I'm almost done here. I'll meet you over there. And she gave me the address. And I went over and elderberry is usually like a bush, like a small shrub. This was like a massive tree. It was the biggest elderberry bush I have ever seen in my entire life. 
and it had more elderberry than anyone could ever know what to do with. And she was absolutely right. So she was canning it and making jams and making pies. And she invited me to harvest from this tree and I've been harvesting from it ever since. So that was a really nice uh, little addition to our, you know, me just going ahead and buying a pie. I ended up having a forever location to wildcraft elderberry from. Mm, that's so awesome. That's really cool. My landlady is Susan from United Plant Savers, and she has a ton of the elderberry little trees up top. So that's pretty cool. Real quick, let's. Get, um, I wanted to talk about the OSHA and the bear. I know a lot of a lot of the herbalists all know about this, but for other people who are not herbalists, I think it'd be cool to hear about how the bear, how animals. You you said even well. First, we'll start with the bear, but you said how other animals. Um, will use plants as well. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, I find it so fascinating, like the symbiotic relationship that plants and animals have. And that's one of my favorite um, subjects to to look into. And the story of OSHA is one of my favorites as well. And so the way that the story was told to me was that these bears will come out of hibernation in the spring. And this is a plant that's primarily out in like the Rocky Mountains and like the Southwest. It doesn't grow here on the East Coast where we are. Um, so I, this isn't a plant that I get to grow or spend a lot of time with because it's just outside of our region. It's also probably important to note here that this is a plant that's on the United Plant Savers at risk list. And so it's mm -hmm. one that we want to tend to carefully and not overuse. And if we are purchasing it, we want to make sure we're getting it from stands that have been cultivated and not wildcrafted because it's a precious plant. It's a native plant and it's been used by um, indigenous people for eons. So it's this beautiful, powerful plant and it comes up out of the ground and like elder, it has a, an umble flower. I always think of like the umble flowers. They look like umbrellas. The flowers come out and they create this flat, like umbrella like surface. And I always think of being like a little toad or a little fairy and being able to get underneath that umbrella of that flower. And I think of that protection that you would feel. So when I see these umble plants, I always think of like protector plants and OSHA comes up in the spring and it's, it's coming out around the same time that the bears are coming out of hibernation. And the story goes is that the male bears come out of hibernation and they've got two things on their mind. You know, they're hungry and they want to find a lady bear. And I'm not sure which goes first, but I know that those are the two things that these bears are thinking about. Hungry and horny. Hungry and horny, exactly. So they, <laughs> they crawl out of their den. They've been sleeping in there for who knows how long. They, they you know, talk about a man cave. Like they don't smell very good. They're stinky. They're hungry. They're ornery. And the lady bears may or may not find that attractive. So just for like extra measure, the bears will go out and they'll find the OSHA plants and they'll take their beautiful big claws that they have and they'll start digging at the roots and they'll pull the roots up out of the ground. And then sort of the way you might see your dog do in a field when he's found some coyote scat, they start rolling their bodies all over the OSHA. And the reason that they do this is because OSHA is so incredibly aromatic. The root of OSHA is so aromatic and it smells so incredible that the bears are basically just drenching themselves in this natural botanical cologne. And then once they get themselves smelling really good, they go out and they find their lady bear and the lady bear supposedly 
is more attracted to this bear because he's made a valiant effort to smell good before they go on their first date and copulate. I love that. It does smell incredible. Yeah. And, and don't they also use it? Um, don't they also ingest it for some medicinal purposes? I've heard that somewhere. Oh yeah, for sure. It's a, yeah, it's a wonderful, um, I know that for human beings, it acts as a wonderful, like upper respiratory yeah. uh, support. So it really helps. It's, at, it's an expectorant. It helps moves things out. And I, I don't know if that's why the bears will chew it up or not. I would imagine that it would have the same effect, but I don't know for sure if that's why they do it. But I do know that they, they do like to use it as cologne and as an herbalist, you know, I think that's a great way to try to, to woo a woman is to drench yourself in, in OSHA cologne. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess this might be a good uh, transition point. Do you want to tell one of your stories? So the, the focus of this podcast is a storytelling podcast, but I think it's pretty important just to kind of talk for a little bit at the beginning. Is there a story now that you feel that you'd like to share? Last week, I had a migraine for the first time, and I, I never had a migraine before. And, and for all of those that have suffered from it, I'm sorry, because it's pretty intense, and it, and it lays you out. And two days before I had a migraine, I started having dreams about black cohosh, which is my most beloved plant. I, had, I was having this dream that was like, you know, Lupo, you should be taking black cohosh. And, you know, like a lot of us, oftentimes I ignore my intuition and I ignored my dream. And two days later, I found myself with my neck and my shoulder just totally jacked up. Like just my mus muscles were just tight and twisted. And this is what eventually led into the migraine. So it was based in my musculoskeletal system. And I was just under a great deal of stress and pressure and so eventually it just got all jacked up and it turned into a migraine. And so this plant has been with me for the last few days. And as soon as it turned into a migraine, that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to listen now. I'm going to start taking this black cohosh. So the reason why black cohosh is so important in that realm is that it works as a musculoskeletal relaxant. So it really helps to relax the body and relax the musculoskeletal system. And so if I had started taking it when I had that dream, or at least when I started to feel that tension in my shoulders building, I would have been working with my body, but I didn't do it. I ignored it because we get busy and sometimes we ignore what we're being told. And I ended up, you know, in this full fledged migraine and using the black cohosh to come out of the other side. But what's interesting is that my, when I was having that migraine, I had this feeling that really big things were going to be happening. And my assistant called me and asked, um, how I was doing. And I said, I, I, in my delirium, I said, I feel like big things are about to come. Big things are about to happen on a personal level and, and also on a planetary level. And that's prior to this like uprising that we're in right now. So black cohosh is a, is my, by far my most beloved plant. It is a native plant. It's native to um, the Northeast and, and the, and the Southeast. So it basically runs all the way down the coast and it's a beautiful plant that grows in the woods. It's a woodland species and it's been around, you know, from the very beginning. Uh, Semisifuga race moa was originally the Latin name and now it's Actea race moa. So sometimes taxonomists have a hard time figuring out exactly where they want black cohosh to fit. And I think that's very indicative to 
what black cohosh is and represents as a plant. So when this plant comes up out of the ground in the spring, it's one of the very first things to unfurl. And generally it pushes up um, with two shoots that are facing each other. And they come up purple and coiled like a spiral and they're facing each other. And the doctrine of signatures is that it looks just like fallopian tubes. And as they open and unfurl, you see these beautiful purple at the time, like dark purple leaves that haven't quite unfolded yet. And they're facing each other just the way that fallopian tubes do in the female reproductive system. And so that's right off the bat, it's giving us some indication of what it's good for. And then as they rise up and they come up out of the ground, they become bigger and they bush out and they turn green and they have these five pointed leaves. And each nodule of the plant, there's like a blackness to it. So as the plant comes up and a stem branches off, you're going to see this black nodule. And the plant will get up to, you know, and the ones in, in, at my house will get at least 10 feet tall. So these plants can get really big. And as they go up, they're bringing these little black nodules up with them. And eventually they give birth to this beautiful flower, tall, thin flowering stalk, which gives off this white flower. And this is also a very aromatic plant, but this plant is not as sweet and syrupy as Osha is. Black cohosh has this like dankness to it it has it to me it smells like birth and death at the same time like the sweetness of both of those and then also like the darkness of both of those and the bees love it so it's a big big friend to the pollinators and they just love this smell and like folks will walk by it and say wow like what is that smell like they can't quite tell if they love it or they hate it because it's just so different than the way any other plant smells and to me, this plant is one of my most beloved plants because it was the first plant that ever spoke through me. I um, learned herbal medicine here in Asheville, North Carolina back in the late 90s. That's when I studied and started to learn about all the beautiful plants here and, and have been teaching herbal medicine for the last 20 years and was very lucky to be studying and learning and teaching plant medicine here in Appalachia. And the black cohosh can be found pretty regularly here, although it, this is another at-risk plant that is on the United Plant Savers um, at-risk list, so another native plant that we really want to pay attention to preserving and not overusing. But here in the mountains of North Carolina, you can find it pretty regularly. And one day I was taking a group of students on a plant walk through the woods, you know, walking up this trail, and on the whole side of the bank of the hill was filled with black cohosh. It was beautiful because it was like eye level with us because it was growing up this hill and we were walking up this incline and it was just perfect. And I dug around a little bit in the landscape on the side of this mountain and I pulled one of the black cohosh, like a huge root ball out of the mountain, out of the earth um, with the intention of putting it back. But I just wanted to show it to my students and I wanted to, them to see it in its full glory. And it was blooming, so I was holding it um, basically I was holding it between like my, well, right where my uterus would be in my body. That's where I was holding like the root ball. I started talking about it. I started explaining a lot of the things, the native plant and its Latin name and, and some of its attributes. And then all of a sudden this story just started to unfold. And as I'm holding the root ball in my hand, I can feel how gnarly and twisted its roots are. 
And Kohash means gnarly roots. And so I started talking about these gnarly roots and I was pulling some of the soil away and showing it to my students. And I was talking about, you know, how that this plant is, it's got this root system that's not like a tuber. It's not like a, a tap root. It's a very twisted, messy, dank situation. And I'm holding it still like on this hill kind of in front of my uterus. And I'm talking about this twisted, congested root system. And then all of a sudden, this story just starts to unfold about how our sacral chakras are this energy system and in our bodies and in our and, and in the feminine body and the uh, anatomically, you know, we have a uterus that can become congested. And sometimes it becomes congested because of stagnant blood flow. It becomes congested because we have maybe there's fibroids or even endometriosis, or it could just be, you know, menorrhagia, like really heavy blood flow. And it has, it can be physically congested, but it can also be emotionally congested because we tend to stuff a lot of our deep wounds in this area of our body, in this, in the sacral chakra area. And so I'm telling the story and I'm thinking about how congestion translates physically, emotionally, mentally, and how it's stored in this region. And then we're looking at this plant and, and telling the story of, you know, pay attention to these black nodules. Let's, let's see, they come up from the root system and this darkness kind of follows all the way up these, these beautiful stalks. But the higher we get, the lighter these black nodules become and the more they begin to fade. And then eventually this plant gives birth to these white flowers, right? So white is just, you know, the color of like, of cleansing and purity and, and um, you know, the ability to, to wash everything clean. And it gives birth to these beautiful white flowers that like spiral up. But the way that this plant moves if you can imagine yourself like doing the um, moving your hips the way you would if you were like hula hooping, that's sort of how black cohosh moves. It's sort of how this plant, because it's so tall and skinny, when there's a little bit of a breeze, it, it kind of moves in this like really beautiful, like undulating way and it spirals. And so I'm thinking of this like congested energy just spiraling up and the darkness dispersing and dispersing and dispersing until finally you get this long spire of white flowers that open up slowly and release themselves to to the above direction and so the story ended up being that you know black cohosh is this has this ability to transmute darkness back into the light and has the ability to decongest our bodies on not only a physical level, which we know that this plant does and acts as an anti-inflammatory and acts as a uterine decongestant, but it can also do that on the emotional level as well. And it can transmute that stagnation into really something very tall and beautiful and reaching for the heavens. And so this whole story came through while I'm talking about this plant. And it was the first time ever that I, afterwards I sat back and I was like, wow, I didn't know that. So it was like my story, it was my words, but it came through me. Like the plant spoke through me. And it was the first time that that ever happened. And I was, it was just so profound. It was so profound. Like afterwards story, I was just as much in awe as everyone else. And I was like, wow, what a profound, profound plant. So I put this plant back 
into the ground. You know, we give thanks for it. We talk about, you know, the some of its other attributes as well. So one of the things that it was used for um, by First Nations people is that it was used for um, traumatic injuries. Like if you had like a really bad fall or in modern times, we would use it for somebody who has whiplash because anytime the body gets jolted really hard, there's the musculoskeletal system has to compensate or overcompensate and often gets like really like jacked up. So if we get into a car accident or any kind of accident, we usually don't feel too bad until the next day. And that's when all the muscles tighten up and are trying to hold that injury. And so they would use black cohosh as an anti-inflammatory. And one of the doctrines is that if you take the black cohosh flowers, you can, the way that they move in the wind, they're on such a tall, long stalk, like sometimes it's eight feet before they even flower. It kind of moves back and forth the way that your body would if you had whiplash or if you think of a whip, if you were to like use a whip, the way that it would like flow and bend, the black cohosh flowers do that too. And so that was a doctrine, like if the body got like whipped or moved too quickly, this was a plant that could help reduce inflammation and help to restore the musculoskeletal system. So it's also meant for trauma. And if it's meant for trauma on the physical, then it's absolutely meant for trauma on the emotional. So then we think of all of the things that impact us that way on an emotional level. Um, and particularly things that would have to do with the lower part of our body. So I will use black cohosh a lot with, um, folks that are struggling with infertility, with folks that are struggling with overcoming like sexual abuse, traumas, with folks that are holding a lot of energy down there. And this plant works in such a beautiful way to decongest that. And I particularly like the flower essence as well. So the part of the plant that's usually used for herbal medicine is the root in tincture form, because it does have that that same dank taste to it. We don't usually put it in tea form. We generally use it as a tincture, but you can also use the flower essence uh, with those beautiful white flowers to work to help to heal the emotional body. I was going to ask for you, you don't have to answer the question, but do you feel like that's where you have personally like held in a lot of your energy? Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, I can't speak okay. for everybody, but I can speak for mm. Um, my experience and my experience as somebody who identifies as a woman, I think that that is a very uh, normal and, you know, incredibly, you, you, you see it over and over and over again, that we hold congestion in this part of our body. I think it's true for everybody. I particularly found it true for myself and I've had to have, and I also found it true for my clients and those that show up in my life and, and they're struggling with this congestion. There's almost always an emotional component to that physical congestion. I know my girlfriend has mentioned just that she just clenches like that entire section of her body a lot during the day. Like a lot of anxiety and stress is in the legs and in the butt and then that entire region. Yep. It's very, very common. And we're also, you know, we're also taught, we're not taught how to energetically take care of ourselves. We're not taught about energy hygiene. We're not taught how to properly handle traumas and dramas. And so a lot of stuff just gets stored. And then eventually it builds up and in, in deep seated emotional issues that are left stored in the body will eventually turn physical. At least that's been my experience as a, as a human being and as a practitioner. Yeah, mine too. Without getting in too much detail, <clears throat> I'm part of a men's group and we've kind of dissected how um, certain shames 
and traumas have become like lifelong ailments in different sections of the body. So it's interesting what you're saying here. Yeah. And thanks for sharing your experience. Cause I certainly can only speak from my own, but what I have noticed that with the, the men in my life and the men that I work with, you know, as a practitioner, I've experienced very similar things. And we see that physically in the body, in the, in the male anatomy with the prostate. And we know that at least 60% of mm. men will deal with benign prosthetic hyperplasia, which is you know, inflammation of the prostate at some point in their lives over 60% of men. I mean, that's a huge number. And to me, when I see physical congestion, I think mm. emotional congestion. So I really think it's what we do as, as human beings, regardless of, you know, of gender or anatomy. The connection I was making is I see a similarity with the cat, with mm. the cat and with mm -hmm. the cohosh, both of these symbols of dark feminine power and energy. And it's fascinating that you kind of channeled that cohosh into... Yeah, I don't know, finding out that wisdom from the, I mean, so I really see just from my perspective, I see a connection between, they seem very similar, a, an animal symbol and a plant symbol of kind of those same dark feminine, super powerful energies. Yeah. I don't know yeah. what, how to expand further than I see a connection. No, I'm with you. It's funny because and, I've, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I've planted um, black cohosh for my landlady. I replanted some. And when I was holding it in my hand, kind of like what you're saying with that root system, I was like, this thing looks like an alien, like a squid or something. And I, I was almost like waiting for it to talk. Like I, it really felt like I was holding an extraterrestrial life form. <laughs> it was pretty strange. I love it. I totally love it. Yeah, it is. It's like out of this world. It really is a very special plant. I mean, we could have this conversation about every plant, really. Like they're all just sentient beings. They're so phenomenal. They're doctrine of signatures, the way that they speak to us. This particular plant I've just spent so much time with that I feel like I know its story better than any other. And at this point, after 20 years of talking about it, it's, it's funny that you say that dark goddess energy or dark feminine energy. The last year when it was in bloom, oh. I was talking about it. I was teaching I maybe had about 20 students around and they were all diligently like taking notes because it was just a plant walk and I'm talking about the plants and they're writing down this, what, what, you know, is important to them. And a little while later we took a break and I walked over to get some tea and next to the tea station, one of my students' notebooks were open and I saw that they had written like black cohosh, you know, and then the Latin name. And then they wrote really big, like dark goddess. And I was like, oh gosh, like this is, this is herb school now for me. You know, it's like, this is my story and they're taking it. And so I was like, how cool is that? These like, this is the brand new introduction to this plant. And I didn't always teach like that, but as the story unfolds, it's just, to me, that is the story. It's like this dark goddess, dark feminine energy that has the ability to heal to bring light to darkness or to allow the darkness to return to the light. And that's just so powerful and so profound. Yes. I love that. I love that transformation of the dark up the stock. And I guess in the stock, it's probably a transition of, you know, gray tones and then it moves into the white. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and the other, the other important piece of that, which I didn't learn until years later was what's, what's considered to be the felt sensation. Like when, when you sit with a plant or anything and you just close your eyes and you intuitively allow yourself to feel the sensation that you, that that's emanating from that plant. 
And I did that work with this plant, I don't know, maybe eight years ago or something. And I was just sitting with the plant and I was like, what is the feeling? What is the feeling? And you allow the feeling to like come in your body. And that's when I found my hips doing that swivel, like doing that hula hoop like motion really Mm. slowly. And that's when I started to think about it as unwinding, untwisting, taking that like congestion and that those gnarly roots that are all over each other and like unwinding it and allowing it to like, you know, to change shape. So it's really a shape shifter as well, which is pretty powerful. And I can tell you one other thing about this plant is that years later, a couple of years after that, when I felt fell so profoundly in love with this plant. And and I remember being a young herbalist. I was in my early twenties when this happened. And I, I really was shook, shook by that, that this plant spoke through me. And I, I didn't really quite understand that, you know, that's something that we all have the ability to tap into at the time. And so we had this ceremony in, in a program that I was in and we um, did a hand fasting ceremony, which is the traditional pagan um, marriage ceremony. But instead of marrying a human being, we were married to a plant and the plant was chosen for us by random. Um, I don't remember if it was the pulled out of a hat or what, but the plant was, you know, we allowed spirit to choose the plant. And of course the plant that was chosen for me was black cohosh. And so I did this hand fasting ceremony with black cohosh and just bound myself to it for life, you know, and as someone who's been divorced twice, I can tell you that I'm never going to divorce black cohosh. And it was a really safe bet as far as, you know, making a lifelong commitment. And that plant has served me so well. And I really see it as a plant right now, going back to like our original conversation at the very beginning of this podcast is like, these are trying times. These are very trying times. There is so much darkness that needs to be untangled and untwisted and unfurled. And there is so much light that needs to be shed and invited in. And I think of Black Hohash as that like uprising, you know, this like uprising that can bring the darkness and transmute it into the light. And so I'm just calling on that energy right now for all of us, you know, for all of the folks that are in the streets right now, for all of the workers that are on the front line fighting COVID, for all of the fight folks that are just fighting the good fight to just call on that black hohash energy to help transmute so that we can tell a new story and so that we can really rebirth into a better version of of a future that seems to connect with kind of everything you're doing with twin star right your twin star apothecary and and your you call it your twin star tribe but right you you have tarot readers and astrologists, farmers, mycologists, herbalists, primitive skills. It's not just about herbal medicine. You're kind of trying to transform, you know, people's spirit and soul, I guess, as well as the medicinal. Yeah, the the we are we were dubbed the twin star twin star tribe by a dear friend of mine whose name is Painted Muddy Turtle and he's an elder on the council of the Mohegan tribe, which is in our area. And um, he, you know, gave us this name as the Twin Star Tribe and really talked a lot about like, this is far beyond like herbalism, you know, and, and there's a lot of folks that will teach herbalism from a very scientific space. And they're talking botany, they're talking constituents, they're talking phytochemicals. I get it. I talk about all of that too, but it would be impossible for me to not talk about plants from the spiritual aspect as well. And so that 
that goes past herbalism that goes to like the food that we eat it goes into foraging it goes into primitive skills and being able to know which tree you can make a bow out of you know and which which plant is going to stop the bleeding for you and it's just it's so much more than just herbalism it's it's back to basics it's back to nature and it's um it's a remembering of the relationships that are all of our ancestors had when we go back far enough to this landscape. Is that what you mean by folk herbalism? Because I saw that on your website as something that a term you guys use. I didn't quite know what exactly folk herbalism means. Obviously, it means it's probably the old school version of doing it in a way with some spiritual elements. Is that what that is? Yeah, it is what that is. It's it's going back and looking at what folks have done before us and and knowing that like these plants have been used for so long and been handed down like this recipe or this idea or this concept or this way of using it has been handed down for so long that we can't negate that. And a lot of times if it's not scientifically validated, by modern science, we want to take that out of the equation. But in my opinion, that's silly. You know, we would really be losing a lot if we didn't give back and look at what the folks who came before us did with these plants. So I think to me, that's the definition of folk herbalism is just looking back at the folks before us and how they did that. And, you know, a friend of mine and I are getting ready to launch a, a class in the fall on folk herbalism. And a big piece of it, I think this would be right up your alley, is going to be telling the stories of the plants, because that's an important part, you know, storytelling. Mm. And herbalism was always, up until very recently, when we look at the big scheme of things, an oral tradition. And it was passed down through our stories. And it wasn't written in a million books and published. And every. I don't think people thought they were so much the, you know, authoritarian on, on these things. I think it was like plants are sentient beings. And so they speak to each of us a little bit differently. So it would be really hard to be the authoritarian on anything other than your own experience. I think in a nutshell, that's my idea of folk herbalism is looking back at what folks have been doing mm -hmm. and how I've been using plants from the very beginning. And I'm sure you learned a lot of that while you were down in Appalachia for your in entire herbal apprenticeship. Yeah, I did. I, I've had the privilege of having some really, really amazing teachers over the years and have learned some really great stuff and a lot of beautiful stories. And, and one of the teachers who, um, who I admired quite a lot and had the privilege of sitting in some classes with, though I didn't study with him fully, was um, Dr. Jim Duke. I'm sure you're familiar with him. He was from your mm -hmm. neck of, or the neck of the woods that you're in now. He passed away a few years ago. And, you know, he's who wrote our Peterson's field guides. And he also worked for the USDA creating our entire um, database of plants and ethnobotanical studies around the world. And so he was this beautiful scientist and, and, and who worked directly for and with the government cataloging plants and plant uses for you know, the United States. And his job was very deemed very prestigious. And he had experiences that many of us could only hope to have. And I saw him once at a, at a conference we were both teaching at, and we were sitting back, um, you know, having a conversation while other folks were teaching. And I, I was a young herbalist and I wasn't afraid to ask questions. And I just said, you know, I've got to ask you, you have all of this great experience and you've cataloged all the uses of plants and you've validated over and over and over again with science, how these plants work. I said, I'm just curious, like, 
you know, now that you're in moving into retirement and your older years, like, what did you gain? What's the, what's the most important thing that you've learned about plants and herbalism? And, and he said, what I've learned is that our ancestors, you know, the folk herbalists, the folks that came before us have always known how to work with these plants. He said, all that I did was spend a lifetime proving what they already knew. And that was because of their direct relationship with the plants. And it was a profound moment for me as a young herbalist to hear this man who has spent his lifetime, you know, working to validate what really our ancestors already knew. And they knew it because of their direct relationship with the plant. It's so incredible to think how ancient peoples figured all this stuff out, right? It's quite mystical in itself. Must have been in ways how you've spoken, where it was just kind of watching observations of how animals use them and then going directly to the plant and and hoping for some divine intervention to kind of tell them some information. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, we like to think that we figured, you know, the human species figured out plant medicine through trial and error. And I'm sure that there was some of that, you know, I'm sure there was plenty of times where somebody ingested something and figured out, oh, probably shouldn't eat elderberries raw anymore. But I also think that because of the way that we have co-evolved with plants from the very beginning, that we have been in such innate and close relationships with the plants, that there is a language, that there is an ability to speak with and communicate to and allow yourself to be communicated through the way that that black cohosh first spoke to me, that we all have access to. And we don't talk a lot about that. We certainly don't talk about that in modern science. And sometimes herbalists or folks will have a hard time talking about it at all because it seems like far-fetched, but it's, it really is how we got where we are today is by sitting with the plant and observing it and seeing where it grows and who it grows next to and, and what it feels like, what it smells like, what it looks like, what its story is. And we just dissected this beautiful story of black cohosh, but we could do that with every single plant and animal for that matter, going back to like our animal medicine conversation. Really fascinating. Yeah, I've been trying to notice because I'm such a novice at I've only lived three years now in the woods. So I'm such a novice at really all realms. Um, but it's been fascinating to just start paying attention to which plants are growing next to each other. Like there's a little bit of ginseng that I've found or not found. I was shown and I noticed that there's always poison ivy kind of protecting it is my feeling. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yep. She is the protector plant and, and protecting in a different way, protecting mm-hmm. from the human, from the humans, protecting from the greed, protecting from the destruction. Mm-hmm. And, and again, a really great example of like how we can have relationship with plants. So if somebody comes to me and they are, you know, especially if they're a student and we're going to be in the woods all the time and they're like, Lupo, I am terrified of poison ivy. Like I can't even look at it and I get it. So my instruction to them is to just go sit with it. Go sit with it. Go sit down with that plant. Draw it. Look at it. Notice it. What What does it feel like to you? Are you afraid of it? Why are you afraid of it? Again, back to like our animal medicine. Like, what is that? What is that? You know, that's coming up in you. And yes, it is very real that you can touch poison mm-hmm. ivy and and you'll have a you know a chemical reaction. But I have had so much luck with folks who have been severely allergic to poison ivy transform that through their relationship with the plant. And not to say that they'll never get it again, because they might in smaller little swatches or places, but they don't get it the way that they used to get it. And I think it's because that fear is not is no longer there and the relationship has been transformed. 
I hundred percent agree with that because my my two examples are I for sure when I first moved here was pretty scared of poison ivy. I got it a handful of times, and then with this is a little bit outside of my normal system of doing things. I don't normally talk to stuff out in nature, though I've been doing it more often. But once I started talking to the poison ivy, like when I walk out to a field, the Appalachian Trail from the cabin door I live in, the whole field is completely covered in poison ivy. And once I started just talking to it and saying, hey, I'm sorry, I'm standing on top of you and getting through. And and then I also promised the poison ivy that I would draw it. I, you know, I haven't got poison ivy since. So I definitely think there's something in transforming that relationship of fear. And another thing that came up for me, and I've only been told about this, I haven't read the book, but again, I, I told you how, how much I'm into Carl Jung's uh, psychology and psychoanalysis. There's a book, supposedly a, a Jungian book about poison ivy and about a woman who her every year was plagued with it to the point that she would be bedridden, like covered in boils until she came into the, until she made conscious um, the realization that both her parents were, I believe, a doctor and a nurse, and she got the most love when she was sick and when she was covered in, you know, mm-hmm. when she was ailing. So once she could transform that, she, she rid herself of this this annual bedridden um, body devastation. <laughs> that, Beautiful. Fascinating. All of this is fascinating. It really is. It's, it's fascinating. And it's, it's, you know, it's magical. And in some ways, it feels like it's this really mysterious thing, but it's, it's not. I mean, if you just play, if we pay close attention, this is unfolding constantly all around us. And so there, there really are no coincidences. It's, I believe at least that things are divinely mm-hmm. orchestrated. And, you know, we are able to communicate with the, with the plant world and, and why would we not be like, we're in direct relationship with plants each and every day. Like we are, their breath is our breath. Why would it be so far-fetched to think that we couldn't have direct communication mm. and really be able to work through some of our stuff? And you reminded me of one last story, which, or I can tell more, but one that I just thought of was here in, in Asheville, North Carolina, about, I would say maybe 15 years ago, they were getting ready to do some big construction. And this was prior to like all of the construction that they've done in Asheville since. And this area in Appalachia is, is so biodiverse and there's so many important plants here that are um, at risk. And we found out about this construction that was going to happen and, and the, this woodlands that were going to get destroyed and decimated for them to put something you know else in, a parking lot or whatever it was. And we went and looked at the land and surveyed the land to see if there were any at-risk plants there. And we found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pink lady slippers. So we find these lady slippers. I'm just like, all right, I've got students. I've got all sorts of like willing and able people. I went to the construction site. I said, can I, you know, I'm not trying to stop what you're doing, but what I'd like to do is be able to get these these rare and very precious native orchids out of here. And, and they gave us permission to, but they only gave us permission to do it like the day they were like starting construction. I think that way they were afraid, you know, we couldn't like stop what they were doing. So we, I go to the site with about 10 students, maybe 12 students and we show up and the bulldozers are there and we're there and the lady slippers are there. And we just, I said, all right, we've got like our tools, like dig them up by the roots. Unfortunately, they were in full flower, which is a very hard time to transplant. 
So we go in and we start digging up these lady slippers. And as we get in, like further away from like the, the road or wherever we were, as we got further into the woods, in came the poison ivy. And next thing you know, we are basically in a giant patch of lady slippers and poison ivy. And some of my students said, you know, Lupo, look at all this poison ivy. We're going to be covered. And I said, I don't think we will be. And so we just took a moment and we just said a group prayer. And we asked for the poison ivy to understand what we were doing and what our, what our mission was and that we weren't there to cause harm, that we were actually there to help rescue and move these plants. And so we just did it. Everybody said, forget it. Don't worry about it. We're just doing it. And we just did it. And we pulled, you know, I would dozens upon dozens. I mean, if not upwards of a hundred lady slippers out of the woods, put them in our cars, drove them to another property, which already had lady slippers established on them, um, which is an important part of the story. They're very hard to transplant. So if you are going to ever transplant something like that, you want to make sure with lady slipper that it's an area that already has them because they require certain microorganisms in the soil. So we did this transplant and we got it all done. It was, it was a huge feat and no one, not one single person got poison ivy. None. And that's when I was like, that's oh. unbelievable. I, it is. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And that's it. That's the power of plants. You know, they, they, they're with us. That's a project that would have made uh, United Plant Savers extremely proud. So that's amazing. Yeah, it was, um, I, I, you know, the United Plant Savers called those plant rescues. And I'm sure that United Plant Savers was doing that work at that time and that we, they were privy to it. This was just pre like Facebook and it was pre social media where everybody knows everything and you put it all up and you're sharing all the time. This was just when we were just kind of being herbalists and doing our things in the woods, you know. But yeah, definitely a good plant saving cool. moment. I saw I saw one while I've been I was turkey hunting this season and then in the national forest along the Shenandoah River Valley here in Virginia. And I walked up on on one little pink lady slipper. That, that was it's pretty beautiful. I mean, it's like shocking that that is like a real plant, just the structure of that flower. Yeah. That's one that I think is very alien like. To me, that's the plant when I see it, I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. you are just out of this world. Like you're an alien. And mm -hmm. it's rare to see just one. They, they do tend to grow in like in families. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if you go back there and you just looked a little bit further that you wouldn't find a few more because they tend to grow in like groups. And if there's one, there's usually another one just around the way or around the bend. But yeah, they, they have a very um, alien-like look to them. Very cool. And they're blooming, well, at least where I live in the Northeast in Connecticut, they're blooming right now. So they're probably past their point um, down here in Asheville. Very cool. Well, I think we've had a pretty awesome conversation. Do you want, is there a final story you might want to tell? I know in text that you told me about um, just how you got into herbalism was quite fascinating. I heard on the the interview lecture that's up on um up on your website on Twinstar that um that connection with grandma and the and the the flower outside um uh, well I won't say what it is if that's part of the story you want to talk about but you just told me you had an interesting interesting path getting into all this so if that's something you might want to tell as a final story that'd be kind of cool yeah sure I'm happy to it's um one of my favorite stories.
My grandmother uh, immigrated from Italy when she was a teenager and she came over here and um, so she, she didn't speak any English. Well, she did, but she spoke, um, she didn't speak it fluently. And she moved from, you know, the middle of the country. She was very much a peasant in Italy and came over here and settled right outside of um, New York City in Norwalk, Connecticut, and created a homestead. And she met my father, who was also um, an immigrant, or my grandfather was also an immigrant as well. And they created a homestead. And I don't, I don't, think that when I was young, I appreciated it the way I would now. Like, I think I appreciated it in the way that that was all I knew. But I look back now at what they were doing, and it was pretty profound. So my, my grandfather was a hunter, and he hunted um, pheasants and ducks, but he was also a coon hunter and a de uh, deer hunter, and he was very much a hunter. Also a mushroom hunter. He's also a mushroom forager. That was just how you survived, you know? And my grandmother kept bees for honey and she kept goats for milk and she kept rabbits for meat. And that was just how you lived. You were just, you homesteaded because that's all you knew. And there really wasn't, there were other options at the time, but there certainly wasn't other options for um, immigrants at that time unless you, you were wealthy. So my dad was raised and my uncle was raised like that too, that they would go out and that they would hunt for fur. And they also raised beagles because beagles were their hunting dogs. And so this was all very much, you know, the, what we're talking about, like the back to the back to the land movement, they were just in it. And, and then my grandmother had these gardens and they, this is just how they um, made their way. And they also owned a gas station eventually. And that, that's the way a lot of immigrants, you know, made their way in this country. And they, my grandmother was a really amazing woman. So this was in, you know, the 1920s, 1930s. And they had a gas station and my, my grandmother would go out there with her coveralls on, with her pants, her coveralls, and women didn't wear pants at that time. And they sure as hell didn't work at gas stations. And so I just think of her of being, you know, pretty much a badass. Like she could raise all of these children and all of this food and all of this medicine. And then she also was like, you know, a little anti-establishment, which I don't know if that was purposeful or if she just didn't know or care really what the difference was but um she was pretty unique woman and I remember you know being in the gardens with her and and being around you know the animals and, and her helping helping her prepare foods and, and medicines and her giving us honey anytime we had a sore throat so I would always say to her that my throat hurt just so I could get a spoonful of her honey and I, I'm sure she wasn't a fool. I'm sure she was just happy to give her granddaughter a spoonful of honey every time. So we um, moved to Newtown, Connecticut, and um, my family, which is a, is a really beautiful area of Connecticut. And it was a little bit more like neighborhoods and, you know, um, <clears throat> nicer homes and a neighborhood situation. And my grandmother would come to visit us from her homestead. And we would go outside in the spring and she would, as soon as the dandelions started coming up, she would start harvesting the dandelions. And I would always be with her and happy to be there with her. But as I got older and I looked around the neighborhood at my, at my parents' neighbors, I noticed that all of the neighbors were spraying chemicals on their dandelions and we were eating ours. And, you know, just as young folks can be very foolish and naive, I just assumed that something was wrong with my grandmother, that, that she must be crazy because everybody else is spraying these with chemicals and trying to get them out of their yards and we're bringing them in to eat them. 
And I remember having that pull away, you know, that young people often have from their parents or from the folks that raise them where they pull away and, and try to look from their own perspective and assume that, you know, they know best. And turns out that, of course, my grandmother was right. And um, she passed away when I was 14. So I didn't have her to like grow into an herbalist with. And, and I, but I do feel like she really set the foundation of, of how I came into this herbal path and how I was to eventually become a future herbalist. And when I went to herb school and I started learning about the plants and I learned about dandelion and how that they actually support the detoxification of the kidneys and the liver specifically from toxins and chemicals. And I had that aha moment that these dandelions actually cure the body they help to remove from the body the very chemicals that we as humans are spraying on them. And that my grandmother, not only was she right, but like she, she knew this, like, and she knew this relationship. She had a relationship with dandelions and it just solidified in me like, wow, you know, this is, this is the folk medicine. This is the folk way. And, and to this day, like my father, he's, um, he just turned 76 and he has, he eats dandelions every day. Every time I go over there, there's dandelions in the refrigerator. You know, they're in my refrigerator. We make pestos with them. And this is the thing that I'm hoping to continue on. These are some of the ways that I see where herbalism in my own life and my own family was never broken and that we can keep continuing on with this story and with this journey. And I don't know if my grandmother or even my father, for that matter, look at the dandelions as medicine the way that I do but they do look at it as food and they do know that it's good for you to be eating directly from the landscape. So whenever I think of dandelions, I think of my grandmother and, and just really give thanks to the foundation that I have for um, being initiated into the plant world as a young person. That's fascinating. I love that. And, and that's making me think just about how we, when I feel when you're really on the right path, how you're carrying on the baton of past family members. You know, for me, my father stopped drawing and illustrating. He would do black ink drawing um, in his up till his 20s, and they were incredible. And then he stopped, and he hasn't done them since. And I stopped drawing in my teens, and just because I thought I sucked and whatnot. So, like 15 years later returning to drawing, which was quite scary. I feel as though I picked something back up from my dad. And now that's basically my career. That's how I make all my money. And I think it's fascinating just how I really feel when people are, are going the right direction in life, they're picking up things from their parents in a positive way. Instead of falling back into the loops of the negative traits of our our parents and whatnot, they, they pick up the positive traits and then make them their own and keep moving forward. So I, I see something in that with how you're carrying on grandma. Yeah. It's a, it's an important point to make. And thank you for making that because we, we do tend to focus, especially nowadays and in, in more recent years, we spend a lot of time talking about ancestral traumas as we should, because there is a lot to undo and decongest, you know, and also there's all of this beautiful, like ancestral blessings, you know, there's all of these pathways of just of, of talent and of, of story and of song and of poetry and of all of these things that do flow through us as well. And I love the idea of shedding light on that and that, you know, you really saw that in your own life with your artwork. It's really beautiful and profound. 
Well, thank you for that story. And I have not heard about dandelion pesto. So could you, how do I make that? Because the second wave of dandelions are popping up in the yard right now. And I, ha I haven't done anything to season with dandelions. So I would love to try that. Yeah. So you can just, you can use the leaves. Um, I, I don't necessarily use the flowers in the pesto, but you just want to gather a bunch of leaves. And okay. in my family, when I make pesto, like you can just use dandelion leaves and just make a pesto like you would with whatever ingredients you choose. Like if it's, you know, olive oil and garlic and nuts, which you may or may not do, or dairy or cheese, which you may or may not do, but whatever your favorite pesto recipe is, you can take the dandelions and put it in place of the basil or whatever else you would have used. Okay. What I do with my family though, for those of, that are listening that might be newer to using uh, wild plants as food or medicine for themselves and especially for their family members is that oftentimes I'll half the recipe. So if there's basil available, I'll do half basil, half dandelion for my recipe so that it's not so bitter and so much all at once. So, you know, as a mother, I raised two children. They're going to be 22 and 19 this year, no, 23 and 19 this year. And, you know, I couldn't just like come home and like throw a dandelion salad on the table when we'd been eating romaine lettuce before. So I really learned to slowly introduce things. And that's good for other folks who might not be as eager as we are to eat these wild foods or we're not as used to the taste, but it's also good for our digestion and our body. So if you haven't eaten a lot of dandelions and then you make a pesto, you've really compacted a lot of dandelions into those few bites. And so I would just think about that, um, where you may want to add spinach or another, um, or something like basil or another wild green so that it's not just all dandelion. Or if you do make just a dandelion pesto, and what I'll do is I'll just take like a teaspoon or a couple teaspoons out at a time and I'll add it to things. I'll add it to stir fries and sauces, but I won't use like a half a cup of it in a noodle dish or something. That's awesome. I'm definitely going to try that. I just, this year I did, you know, it's a classic you see with the herbalists, but doing the um, garlic mustard, which is the invasive doing that pesto. And that was so good. And my girlfriend mm -hmm. loved that so much. So it'd be cool to do a mix of the garlic yep. mustard and then the dandelion. And that's a great tip to ease into it if you're not used to some of the stronger flavors of the wild plants. Yeah, that's a great combo because the, the garlic mustard has that pungent spiciness to it, but it's also mild. It's not too intense. Dandelion's pretty bitter. So if folks aren't used to that bitter flavor, it's mm -hmm. a great way to cut it with that. But yeah, I think that would be a fantastic combination. Cool. Well, I think this has been a pretty awesome conversation. And I feel like... Uh, We've talked about a lot and I think this is kind of a good place to end. Do you feel the same way? I do. I'm so grateful for you inviting me and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And, you know, thanks for putting this out there and for inviting the storytellers in and inviting us to share our experiences. And I'm really looking forward to hearing the other guests that you have on here and, and truly just wish you the best of luck with this. Thank you. Yeah, it's a little, it's a little daunting of a task, but I feel like I'm just here to facilitate stories of people who have their own connections, their own passionate connections to nature and whatever they kind of want to talk about and say, I'm just here to kind of let that happen. So I'm honored. You know, I don't know too much about herbalism. My mom is the one in the family who's the big herbalist, but I'm slowly learning and I've been drawing a lot of the plants for the past three years. And by doing that, I've learned a lot about them. But yeah, it's fascinating. I guess in closing, um, is there anything you want to um, tell folks about regarding twin star. I mean, I know everything's up in the air with COVID, but if there's anything you want to kind of let people know about, well, you first of all, the Instagram account, and then 
any classes or anything like that, feel free to give, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks. I really appreciate that. So we have a, a herbal school, Twin Star Herbal Education, and we also have Twin Star Apothecary, where we have two locations where we're a full service herbal apothecary, where we gather and make and create all of our medicine by hand. And then we also have Twin Star Travel, where we take folks out of the country to different parts of the world to learn and study ethnobotanical wonders. And so that, that last one's kind of on pause for this year with the traveling, um, but the apothecary is still open and available. And our classes right now, the majority of them are being taught online, but as things open up, we will be having more in-person classes as long as that it's safe for, for everybody. And we definitely invite you to come check out what we're doing. You can find us at twinstartribe.com. Our handle on Instagram is twinstartribe. And I have just launched a pretty massive online training for the first time ever in my life. And I just gave birth to it last week. And it's a flower essence training. So if you're interested in learning more about how flowers speak to us and the way to communicate with flowers and really work with them on the emotional and energetic body, I would love to have you check out our new flower essence course called the art of flower essence therapy. And, you know, we teach all sorts of fun things, everything from primitive skills to goddess tradition to folk herbalism, and really are interested in learning more about what other folks are interested in learning about as well. And just to keep this momentum going and we're totally down to collaborate and support folks doing the good work and just happy to have you all listening today. And really thank you for being a part of this and, you know, really huge thanks to having me on as a guest today. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate this and um, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it as well. Thanks for all the good work that you're doing out in the world. And thanks to all of you that listened. <laughs>